0: How are we today? Like I said last week, U2, that's the band that is playing through that bumper. They're one of my favorite bands, and that song is one of my favorite songs. So it's pretty cool to be able to come out and and kind of preach after that. So, well, like I said just a few minutes ago, my name is Patrick Galla. Uh, I'm the ministry intern here at Randall. Uh, I've been here for the last three weeks or so, and I will be with you at this point, kind of whether you like it or not, until the end of August. So... Uh, I'm excited to be here with you today and this morning. Um, I was—it uh, was a huge blessing for me to be able to preach last week, um, and so I'm excited to be back here this morning and uh, sharing from God's word. Uh, it's uh, one of the biggest blessings that I count for myself personally, personally, to be able to preach and and share from God's word. So, if you weren't here last week, let me just give you a little snapshot of why. I am here, well, I'm in uh, my master's program at Liberty School of Divinity. I'm coming into my last semester, so that's why I'm leaving at the end of August to go back to, uh, back to Virginia, uh, and I'll be completing my master's of divinity there in concentration in biblical studies um, at this December. So through the Buffalo grapevine, I am from Buffalo, even though I said y'all earlier, so I'm sorry, I'm, I'm kind of in the process and rhythm of saying y'all. It's now in my vocabulary. I'll try to get that out of my vocabulary. Vocabulary, but um, reached out to some friends who know Pastor Milo, and through a couple conversations and some prayer, I had the summer open uh, after a six-week internship in uh, a church in Kentucky. Uh, Milo and the elders extended the invitation for me to come and be here and help uh, as we kind of, tra- as you guys kind of transition with Mario and Brian. Uh, as your new staff members. So I'm just excited to be here, uh, to be obviously back in Buffalo, to be spending time with family, and to see what the Lord is doing in Buffalo. It's, it's, it's absolutely incredible. Uh, it's been three years since I've been able to come back and spend a good, significant chunk of time here. So I, at the end of this trip, I would have been home for seven weeks. So it's just good to be back with some Buffalonians, right? Can I, can I get an amen there? Yeah, all right. All right, so that's who I am and why I'm here. And uh, we've been in this series in Ecclesiastes uh, the last few weeks, and we're going to continue our study this morning. And so if you will, you can go ahead, uh, you can open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes 7. Uh, It's going to be a few minutes before we get there. But uh, anytime you're preaching, they teach you in seminary to make sure you identify the text early on, all right? So Dr. King would be really proud of me right now. He said, yes, a boy, Patrick, way to identify the text early. So we're going to be going to Ecclesiastes 7. It's going to be a few minutes before we get there, but you can go ahead and stick a, a paper clip or a pen or pencil in there or, or whatever you have, and uh, we'll be there in just a few moments. But we're going to continue our study of the book Ecclesiastes, and just as we saw the last week and the weeks prior, we're listening in to the words of Solomon, the old wise king. And so, so we saw last week that Solomon is attempting to find the meaning of life, and so I can't take credit for that really cool hashtag, if any of you know about the Twitter, Facebook, social media world, uh, that's kind of a big thing, hashtagging stuff. So... Milo and the staff came up with hashtag the meaning of life so this is the thought that we have been attempting to trace through the book of Ecclesiastes and so he is taking us on this journey with him and this journey looks like this one by one he's assessing these different worldview systems and these systems attempt to to solve a problem just like any good worldview system right even though some of them are not so good they attempt to answer tough questions. And so you and I know this problem well. It's something that every single person deals with at one point or another in their life. And it's it's this question. It's what is the meaning of life? And maybe we don't always explicitly ask that question like sitting around pondering to ourselves, what is the meaning of life like maybe a good philosophy major would. But we often chase avenues like money, power, happiness, even family, even religiosity, and we hope to find in them this answer. And so if you remember, we briefly mentioned it last week that 1 Kings 3 tells us this about Solomon, the, the author of the book that we're studying this morning. It tells us that he was the wisest man who has ever lived. Just let that like, kind of settle in for a moment. I'm, I'm sure there's a few of us here this morning that think, you know, we kind of we got a good feel on life and we kind of, you know, we're pretty wise maybe, but the Bible, God's authoritative spoken word, tells us that Solomon was the wisest person to have ever lived. All right, this isn't just like figurative, this is explicit, and this is factual. And so Solomon is coming into the kingship of Israel. As he is doing so, however, he recognizes, which I think is pretty funny, that he's lacking wisdom and discernment. And so in this major life crisis moment, he does probably the smartest thing he can do. He prays, right? And I think it's pretty cool that our emphasis this last month has been on prayer. So he runs to the Lord and he prays and he asks the Lord, Lord, I need wisdom and discernment from you. I am lacking it and I can't be lacking wisdom and discernment if I'm going to be leading your people. So it tells us in that passage in 1 Kings 3 that God is pleased with this prayer and so he answers Solomon's prayer. And so now 3000 years later we have Solomon's wisdom. Wisdom that was been given to him by God canonized and captured for us in three books. The Proverbs, Song of Solomon, and the book of Ecclesiastes. And at the end of the book of Ecclesiastes, and don't flip there, just I have the verses here, I'll read them to you. Just listen to what it says about Solomon's wisdom. And you can jot this reference down if you have the sermon inserts. It says this in Ecclesiastes 12, 9 through 12, starting in verse 9. Not only was the teacher wise, but he also imparted knowledge to the people. He pondered and searched out and set in order many proverbs. The teacher searched to find just the right words, and what he wrote was upright and true. The words of the wise are like goads. A goad is just like a prodding stick that's used to herd animals. He says, The words of the wise are like goads. They're collected sayings like firmly embedded nails given by one shepherd. So we can see in these few verses. That's Solomon's wisdom—he takes this painstaking labor, this process that goes into writing these books. He takes time to think through his words, and he puts them in phrases, and it's—it's it's just very ordered and detailed. And now, when we look at Solomon, when we look at the Song of Solomon, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes, it falls into this larger category of wisdom literature, which we could kind of also lump in there—Psalms and the book of Job. And so I'm gonna take you to English class for for just for a quick second. So if you hated English, don't freak out. All right, hang with me for a second. So when we talk about different genres of biblical literature, wisdom literature is one of those main categories. And so we have these categories when we talk about the study of the Bible or hermeneutics, if if we have any theology buffs here. We have these categories and these categories help us understand and approach a book. And so when we approach Song of Solomons or Proverbs or Psalms, we categorize them in wisdom literature. And there's special characteristics that kind of come with this wisdom literature. And so these characteristics are often kind of ordered in detail very meticulously and they're short, pithy proverbial statements and so don't flip there but I just want to read off three proverbs to you and just get a feel for how how it sounds one proverb says this the plans of the heart belong to the man but the answer is from the Lord another one says let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you bind them around your neck write them on the tablet of your heart and then another one says when the righteous increase the people rejoice listen to this but when the wicked rule, the people groan. I thought I'd mention that one specifically just because of where we're at in our political climate, so depending on where you land anyways. So maybe you're wondering, okay, what's the deal with this wisdom literature? Why are you mentioning this? Why is it important? Well, it's important because we need to understand this when we approach Ecclesiastes and we're gonna see specifically these short pithy proverbial statements when we turn to Ecclesiastes 7 and again just to take another moment with you we're almost to our text but just to recap for a moment as we said for the last few weeks we've been walking through this book right and we've been on this hunt and we've been on this hunt to find the meaning of life and so last week as you recall we we walked through chapters 5 and 6 alright and if you missed last week shame on you totally joking but let me just recap what happened last week in Ecclesiastes 5 and 6 if you weren't here Solomon covers the temptation that all of us face regarding chasing the shadows of false worship and chasing the shadows of wealth and so within those two chapters in 5 and 6 he attempts to find the meaning of life through two things through the pursuit of empty religion and through the pursuit of possessions and wealth. And in the end, as we saw last week, he speaks from first-hand experience. We saw that he concludes that both of these pursuits, the pursuit of false religion and the pursuit of wealth and possessions, they're vain pursuits. They're shadows of the real image that he calls us to pursue. Hopefully you remember that. So this morning as we move forward into chapter 7 and we continue our study of Ecclesiastes, Solomon follows this same pattern, okay? He is assessing life through multiple different worldview systems, wealth, possessions, power, legacy, even family. And so he says that they are avenues that many people chase attempting to find within them the meaning of life. And we're going to see this pattern, it continues to unfold, and he's going to move on to this next assessment, and he's going to assess wisdom. So he's essentially going to ask the question, can we find the meaning of life through wisdom? And so now hopefully you have your your place marked uh, in Ecclesiastes 7. Go ahead and uh, open there with me. Before we read chapter 7, and I'm going to be reading from the NIV version, I believe if you don't have a Bible, there's Bibles in the pew backs there, NIV as well. I'm going to pray for us real quick, and I'm just going to pray that God is going to illuminate this text to us through his Holy Spirit and speak to us this morning. So let me pray, I'll read it, and then we'll go from there, all right? So Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for our worship so far this morning. We can sing to you, we can pray to you, and we can, we can hear from you through your word and we can respond i ask that through your holy spirit you would illuminate the text that you'd speak to us that you put your word deep in our hearts if there's any distractions here this morning in our hearts and our minds lord just put those on the back burner for the next few moments and speak to us we ask these things in the name of your beautiful son jesus amen okay so i'm picking up in verse one and i'm going to read the whole chapter all right last week we read two whole chapters So this week's only one chapter, all right? So hang with me. It says this in verse 1. A good name is better than fine perfume, and the day of death better than the day of birth. It is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for death is the destiny of every man. The living should take this to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, because a sad face is good for the heart. The heart of the wise in the house of the morning, but the but the heart of the fools is in the house of pleasure. It is better to heed a man's rebuke than to listen to the song of fools. Like the crackling of thorns under the pot, so is the laughter of fools. This too is meaningless. Extortion turns a wise man into fool, into a fool. Extortion, excuse me, turns a wise man into a fool, a fool and a bribe corrupts the heart. The end of a matter is better than its beginning and patience is better than pride. Do not be quickly provoked in your spirit for anger resides in the lap of fools. Do not say why were the older days better than these for it is not wise to ask such questions. Wisdom like an inheritance is a good thing and benefits those who see the sun. Wisdom is a shelter as money is a shelter. But the advantage of knowledge is this that wisdom preserves the life of its possessor. Consider what God has done, who can straighten what he has made crooked. When times are good, be happy, but when times are bad, consider God has made the one as well as the other. Therefore a man cannot discover anything about his future. In this meaningless life of mine I have seen both of these things, a righteous man perishing in his righteousness and a wicked man living long in his wickedness. Do not be over-righteous, neither be over-wise. Why destroy yourself, he asks. Do not be over-wicked and do not be a fool. Why die before your time? It is good to grasp the one and not let go of the other. The man who fears God will avoid all extremes. Wisdom makes one man wise, more powerful than ten rulers in a city. There There is not a righteous man on earth who does what is right and never sins. Do not pay attention to every word people say, or you may hear your servant cursing you. For you know in your heart that many times you yourself have cursed others. And this I tested by wisdom. I said, I am determined to be wise, but this was beyond me. Whatever wisdom may be is far off and most profound. Who can discover it? So I turn my mind to understanding, to investigate and to search out wisdom in the scheme of things and to understand the stupidity of wickedness and the madness of folly. I find more bitter than death the woman, the woman who is a snare, whose heart is a trap, and whose hands are chains. The man who pleases God will escape her, but the sinner. She will ensnare. Look, the teacher says, this is what I have discovered, adding one thing to another to discover the scheme of things while I was still searching but not finding. I found one upright man among a thousand, but not one upright woman among them all. This only I have found. God made man upright. But men have gone in search of many schemes. And then in verse 8, 1, we conclude, Who is like the wise man who knows the explanation of things. Wisdom brightens a man's face and changes its hard appearance. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. And so thanks for tracking with me. As we have the reflections of the king, he looks back upon his life and he really kind of assesses all of his life experiences. And so now there's a lot going on in this text, but I think Solomon draws two conclusions, two major conclusions that we can understand, take away, and apply to our lives. And remember, as we look at these takeaways, Solomon is the wisest man to have ever lived. And this is what he says. First, wisdom is better than folly. When we look at verses 1 through 14, this text breaks into two passages. 1 through 14, and then 15 to 8, 1. So 1 through 14 he addresses wisdom and he contrasts them and folly we can understand is foolishness so Solomon gives us these proverbs for reason he gives us these proverbs as we said short pithy statements that prods us in the right direction he gives us these proverbs for practical living and he does so through different situations as we see and we'll break down that often present themselves to us as we go about living our lives And so he uses this phrase, you may have caught it, better than. Several times to emphasize the stark contrast between wise living and foolish living. So the first wise exhortation to us is this. And if you have your sermon inserts this morning, you can fill in the blanks here. The first wise exhortation we see in verses 1 through 6 is wisdom and suffering. So here Solomon gives Oh, awesome. You do have your sermon inserts. Good. Hope you're taking some notes. Okay, so here Solomon gives us practical living through times of suffering. (laughs) And suffering is common to all mankind. See, we live in a broken world. We see suffering every day. We personally experience it. We see it happen in France and the shootings all over our nation and death is really everywhere around us, it seems. And this is suffering. And so maybe... This is why we kind of see it first in this passage. And so even as the king of Israel, Solomon experienced suffering in his life in some form of another or another. And so he anticipates even for his audience then and now that suffering, just as it came for him, will also come for us. And so we will need wisdom and how to respond to it and through it. Okay, and one of the ways we experience suffering is through death. And this is kind of the main theme that we see in this passage 1 through 6. He speaks of suffering regarding death. And so he addresses this here. And certainly he's speaking about our own death, but I think more specifically he's speaking about the death of those around us. And you can look with me at verses 1 and 2. He says this, A good name is better than fine perfume, and on the day of death better than the day of birth. It is better to go into the house of mourning than to go into the house of feasting. For death is the destiny of everyone. The living should take this to heart. And so I'm sure that we've all all been in this situation where we have experienced the death of others. We've either been to a wake or a funeral and, you know, obviously death is a fact of life. It's it's, it's very real and, and we all know this. But even the fact that it is a natural part of life it doesn't necessarily make it easier for us when we experience death. We grieve, we feel very real pain. It's not hard to walk through suffering in this matter. This is natural, but he says, what he is saying here, however, is that when we go through these periods of suffering and the pain of losing someone, a wise takeaway for us would be to think about the death of that person by pondering how to live our own life in light of it. I recently uh, just went up to Awake in uh, Toronto in in, uh, Guelph which is a suburb of Toronto and for the sake of the family I don't want to get into the details but it was a father that passed away uh, and he passed away way too young 47 years old left behind a uh, a wife and three children so it was extremely sad it was a very aggressive form of cancer. And so I went up there with my dad and we went into the the wake and um, it was an open casket and so we were there and uh, I saw him and it's been a while since I've seen him and he's a family friend of ours and uh, it's hard. This cancer kind of took his body and he just really was wasted away. And obviously it was sad and I grieved with the family there and Uh, I've been praying for them and all of these things. But death, unfortunately, is a very real fact. And so I began to think of my own life. See, death brings us to a place to think of our own life. And that is exactly what I think he is saying, that we can have wisdom in in verses 1 through 6 and even a time of suffering. When we think about those who are passing away, we can look at our life, we can assess our life and where we're at. And I think one commentator says it well. He says of these, these first verses, he says, This severe, severe statement arises not from despondency or hopelessness, but from sheer realism. Death is a fact. So Solomon is being being very real with us. We have one life, he says, and wisdom is to ponder death. The reality should drive us to live a planned and well-thought-out life, making the best of every moment. And then if you remember, I read it out loud, it says this at the end of Ecclesiastes, the words of the wise are like goads. And remember, a goad is like this shepherding, prodding stick that drives his sheep where he wants them to go. So we can take away from this passage that we can have wisdom and suffering and through death these proverbs are telling us and the great shepherd is using these words like a prodding stick to move us toward the right direction to have wisdom and suffering. So he dresses wisdom and suffering and then in the next passage he dresses wisdom and oppression. And so when we look at verses 10 through 12 he's he's talking about wisdom and oppression. And he says this in verse 8, The end of a matter is better than its beginning, and patience is better than pride. Do not be quickly provoked in your spirit, or anger resides in the lap of fools. Here he's addressing oppression and trials, and again, trials and oppression, a very natural part of life. But we can, however, sometimes consider these seasons of trials as oppression, oppression that often weighs us down and places upon us heavy burdens. And again, Solomon knows that there's going to be seasons of oppression and this oppression will come. And when they come, we will be tempted to do, th- to do two things. We're going to be tempted to either completely run away in the other direction of this trial and this oppression or to, com- or to become completely engulfed in anxiety and fear and anger or as Solomon says, to be provoked in your spirit. And instead, what he says to us is this in verse 8. He invites us to see the potential of trials. See, the trial will pass, and when it passes, if we had the patience to endure it, the trial can teach us something. They can often be purposeful. They don't have to be empty, vain seasons of oppression. So for Solomon, wisdom through oppression means this. It means not to run to anger, but instead he exhorts us to have peace and patience. And so next, then, he addresses the simple need for wisdom. Remember, 1 through 14, he's giving us very practical, wise things to live our life. And so when we look at 11 through 12, he kind of just simply stops and says, hey, you need wisdom. We all need wisdom, right? Can we agree that we all need wisdom? The verses in the section are straightforward and clear. He says this in verse 11. Wisdom, like an inheritance, is a good thing and benefits those who see the sun. All right, that last little phrase there, who see the sun. Okay, pause for a moment. We all see the sun, right? Unless we're living in a cave, okay? So he's saying that just as everyone sees the sun, everyone needs wisdom. Everyone on earth. Then he goes on to say, in verse 12, wisdom is a shelter as money is a shelter. But the advantage of knowledge is this. Wisdom prefers, preserves those who have it. For Solomon, wise practical living is to see your need for wisdom. Just as we have this need for shelter and money and food and other physical things, we are in need of wisdom. It's the same thing. So Solomon pauses here in the middle of these kind of proverbial statements in this exhortation of practical living to just say and look and have a very real moment of look we all need wisdom I need wisdom and you need wisdom and you need to seek it and you need to live by it he says as earnestly as you seek shelter you should seek for wisdom and then finally this is the icing on the cake when it comes to practical living I love it his last exhortation for us toward practical wise living is this have wisdom in accepting God's sovereign plan verses 13 through 14 this is the perfect kind of end just thrust while he addresses having wisdom through suffering through trials and oppression and even points out our simple need for wisdom he then says and concludes the section with maybe the best piece of practical advice we could have he exhorts us to live and to have wisdom and accepting God's sovereign plan he says this in verse 13 consider what God has done who can straighten what god has made crooked meaning everything is subject according to god's will everything now i know i might get some pushback here and don't turn there but just listen to paul's words in romans 8:20 he says for creation for the creation was subject to futility not willingly but because of him capital h him who subjected it in hope and we're going to see at the end of our talk here, what that hope is all about. So God did this, and God has a plan. See, so He goes on to verse 14 to say, "When times are good, be happy. But when times are bad, consider this: God has made the one as well as the other. Therefore, no one can discover anything about their future. No one knows the future because God is the one who is controlling all of these things. See, we're stuck in this tension, you and I. We know that we experience both good and bad times. It's it's a part of life. It's a part of the sin-broken world that we live in when we experience bad things and then we experience good things. But Solomon says that both the good things and the bad things, the good times and the bad times are from God. And God is the one that is in control. This is why we can't discover our future, as Solomon would say. So God holds the key to all the unknown. God is all-knowing. God is all-powerful. And God is everywhere. Those are kind of the three omnis that theologians talk about. He is all-knowing, all-powerful, and everywhere. There's nothing that slips through the cracks with God. And so, when we look at verses 1 through 14, we can see four practical takeaways for us. And this is exactly what Solomon would call wise living. He says, and wisdom is wise living, it's better than folly. Remember, he's contrasting wisdom, wise living, and foolish living. He calls us first to use wisdom in suffering, then he calls us to use wisdom during times of oppression. trials and then he points out our simple need for wisdom and then lastly the perfect icing on the cake all of these things he says hey look use wisdom and understanding that God is sovereign over all of these things and again for for Solomon wisdom is better than folly this is the ideal that Solomon calls us to 1 through 14 the righteous way of living live wisely this is the ideal for Solomon Okay, but here's the deal. You're going to have to track with me for a moment here, okay? While all of the things that we just had mentioned are completely true, and wisdom is from the Lord, and, and God is using Solomon to teach us how to live practically in wisdom, and to walk in wisdom, he knows that the ideal here in this world is not always achievable. And so we'll see in the second half of this chapter... He says there's often a more realistic response. So this is our second major takeaway. That there is a more realistic response. And we will look at verses 15 through the end of the chapter into 8.1. Solomon gives us a realistic response. So he searches for this response regarding all of the wisdom that he just laid out, all of the wisdom in 1 through 14. He notices some things, and he notices some things here that he might need to address. Right, and he, and as, he, as he is doing so, he points out two things. First, he desires that we should find the balance in righteous living. Second, at the end of the day, man's wisdom falls short of God's perfect plan. So, the first takeaway in this section, let's look at what Solomon means by finding the balance. And so, read with me, if you will. In verses 15, it says this It says, in, the meaningless, in this meaningless life of mine, I have seen both of these. Both of these things. Are you ready? And this is what he's seen. This is what he's seen the righteous perishing in their righteousness, and the wicked living long in their wickedness. So it's kind of a whole contrasting idea to what he just laid out in 1 through 14. Here Solomon interjects kind of a vertical problem. He's kind of like questioning things. He's like saying, God, this is what I've seen. How could this be so? And so the realistic truth is this. In the world of brokenness that we live in, righteousness, some, righteous people sometimes die young while wicked people sometimes live long. So we need to find the balance. He's calling us to live a righteous life. And even though he is calling us to, to live a righteous life, righteousness doesn't always guarantee a perfect life for us in this present life as we know it. In fact, he says that he has witnessed both of these extremes. So he kind of fills us in. He kind of puts his arm around our shoulders and says, okay, look, all these things are true that we just talked about. I just need to let you know of this one exception clause. Sometimes things just happen. And then, as he continues to say in verse 16, look what he says Do not be overrighteous, neither be overwise. Why destroy yourself? Now, I'm going to be really honest with you. There is some ambiguity here in the, in the original language. So, it's originally written in Hebrew, and a lot of scholars will say, Okay, this is a very tough verse to understand. But I think most scholars make the agreement that they say that this is what it means. That he's talking about someone who is pretending to be righteous. Let me just read it for you one more time. Do not be over-righteous, neither be over-wise. Why destroy yourself? So just hang with me here, and I'm going to show you why I think that it's speaking to somebody who's being over-righteous. And I think if we think about it, it's kind of a tendency that we we all sometimes have. And it's a a tendency that, that I sometimes have. When I'm seeking in my personal life, to be very real and open and honest with you, when I'm seeking in my personal life to live wisely, when I go to the Proverbs and I spend a lot of time in the Proverbs and I'm like a seeking wisdom and the beginning of the wisdom, wisdom is to fear the Lord and all of these things, when I'm spend, spending a lot of time of reading these things, I'm trying to live a holy and righteous life and I'm meditating on all these things. You know what's very interesting, what starts to happen to me? Probably can guess. I start to actually kind of become pretty self-righteous. And I start to think, dude, you are like doing pretty good right now. Like you're like living, you know, you're doing all these practical things that God's calling you to do and uh, all you're living wise and you're trying to incorporate wisdom into your life. While it's true that Solomon calls us to do that, the tendency is that we could become self-righteous. And this is what I think he's saying in this verse. See, it's as if I'm pursuing my own righteousness. So he says, do not pretend to be righteous and certainly don't become self-righteous. And this makes even more sense when we look at the next verse, verse 17. He says, but do not be over wicked and do not be a fool. You see, the contrary danger of self-righteousness is a potential capitulation or a surrender to evil. So here he doesn't want us to stop pursuing righteousness or do whatever we want to do. He's simply warning us. And he says so that because that by some weird way our righteousness will be genuine. Don't pursue not righteousness. Don't, 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 don't stop pursuing righteousness and begin to live foolishly so that by some off chance when righteousness living actually happens it's genuine. That's not what he's saying. He's simply saying look don't be self-righteous and don't completely give in just don't don't be self-righteous. Don't completely give up on seeking to live a righteous life, but find the balance. He says in verse 18, which I think sums it up well. These few verses. It is good to grasp the one until not let go of the other. Whoever fears God, he says, will avoid all extremes. And we'll kind of come back to that statement. What it means to fear God. But the next thing he points out is this: man's wisdom falls short. So when we look at verse 23 and 28. He says in verse 23 really listen to the statement. He says this that all this I have tested by wisdom and I said I am determined to be wise. Just think of him like just really I am determined to be wise, but this was beyond me. And all of his wisdom and with all of his might he was determined to be wise, but he couldn't fully achieve it. And then skip ahead to verse 28. He says this, while I was still searching but not finding, and most of your translations should have a period there as it concludes this thought, I was toiling under the sun, I was searching as hard as I could to find wisdom, I was determined to get wisdom and to stay away from folly, but I couldn't do it. You see, through the the use of his wisdom and through the sheer might of determining to be wise, he sought the answers to the meaning of life. And he couldn't do it. He tried empty religion in chapter 5. Then he pursued in chapter 6, he tries chasing the pursuit of the meaning of life through wealth and possessions. And here in chapter 7, as his whole understanding of presenting a worldview, something that we can find the meaning of life in, he attempts to find the meaning of life in, in, in the use of wisdom. And while this man has the most wisdom that any man has ever had, even Solomon says he falls short. He can't do it in his own strength. So again, just like last week, we were presented with a dilemma. Last week, religion, religiosity, and and possessions and wealth fell short when we had this conversation about finding the meaning of life. And now Solomon says, hey, I want you to pursue righteousness. I want you to pursue wise living. But at the end of the day, when it comes to God's perfect plan, which he desires righteously perfection he says your wisdom falls short it's not something that you could achieve on your own and so thankfully again we have a conclusion and Solomon concludes for us and so you can go ahead and turn to the end of the book or you can listen to me read it but he says in verse 20 actually pause real quick I need to point out one thing before we can see this conclusion. There's one thing that I think you need to see. Looking at verse 29, he speaks to the reality of the depraved state of man. Listen to what he says in verse 20. Indeed, there is no one on earth who is righteous, no one who does what is right and never sins. Then he goes on to say in verse 29, "The, the only this only I have found. God created man upright, but they have gone in search of many schemes false religion, possessions and money, wisdom. We were created perfect, but now we're not. Again, just as we mentioned last week, we were created to be in perfect harmony with God. Man was made to be upright. He was made righteous and holy. But sin enters in and it fractures this relationship that we have with God, and Paul alludes to this in Romans 5. And because of this fracture... It drives us toward to seek out many schemes. That's exactly what Solomon says. So Solomon's conclusion is this. As we fast forward to the end of the, to the end of the book, now we could jump there. Look at verse 13. Now all has been heard. After he assesses everything, here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the duty of all. Mankind. Solomon discovers the answer to a true meaningful life, and it's not what the world would tell us. It's completely different. A meaningful life is found not in the pursuit of self-fulfillment, even self-fulfillment through wise living. He says the pursuit of a God-centered, he says it is the pursuit of a God-centered life. The meaning of life. Or as we would say here, hashtag the meaning of life is found in the pursuit of a God-centered life. Remember, to fear God, as he says, throughout these chapters, it means to have a respect and holy reverence for God. A respect and reverence that drives us to live according to God's ways. It means to live a life seeking after the kingdom of God. This is a God-centered life. This is what it means to steal his language, fear God, and keep his commandments. And this is, the whole arg- this is the whole world view that Solomon is arguing for. All right, so this is the conclusion. Fear God and do his commandments, okay? So this is, co- this is Solomon's conclusion. Well, as we fast forward to the New Testament, does Jesus have anything to say about it? Well, if you will, turn with me to Matthew 22, 34 through 40. As we move into the New Testament... You better believe that Jesus wants to weigh in on the issue. And see, in this passage, I'm not going to completely exegete the entire passage, but just to give us a feel, the religious leaders of the day are actually asking Jesus essentially kind of the same question that pertains to our talk this morning and to Solomon, what Solomon is saying in chapter 7. He asks Jesus, what... Out of all the commandments, which one is the greatest? Listen to the dialogue real quick, and I'm going to read it. And note the response that Jesus has for them. Picking up in verse 34, he says, Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, I love this. Jesus just silenced one religious group, and now like, the next religious group is like in the corner, like, just excited to like get up there like it's some like, weird sparring match, and, and Jesus is getting ready to let them let him have it. I absolutely love it. So hearing that Jesus silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, he says. He's like he's completely mocking him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Totally seeking to stump him. Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. This is the first, this is the greatest commandment. The second is just like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. In verse 40, he says, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Jesus completely summarizes the whole Old Testament in these two short laws. Love God and love others. Love God and love those around you. Love God and love your neighbor. Love God and love those who are in your church. Love God and love your community. See, the God-centered life is a life that finds its centrality in loving God and being loved by God. And we know that this happens in one way and one way only, and it's through the gospel of Jesus. It's on the cross where Jesus brings sinners who are at war with God into a loving relationship with God. He bridges this gap. Jesus breaks down the wall of hostility between us and God. No one in his or her own natural flesh loves God, but when we respond to the gospel, when we respond to the work that happened on the cross, God brings us into a relationship with him. While we were yet sinners, Jesus died for us. This is the most beautiful thing that this world has for us. That Jesus steps out of heaven and while we were yet sinners, dies for us. And when we trust not in our own righteousness, but in the righteousness of Christ, not our own vain pursuits, we have the ability to respond to God in love. And John says this in 1 John 1, 9, we love because he first loves us. We can love the Lord our God with our heart, our soul, and mind, and we can love our neighbor as ourselves because God first loves us through the cross, through the pursuit of us, through His his Son, Jesus. And so I want to close this morning, I want to close with this question. Are you relying on your own wisdom and your own righteousness? Or are you relying on God's wisdom and God's righteousness? You see, if you're sitting here today and you're a Christian, we've all trusted Jesus for the salvation of our lives. But sometimes, seasons can continue in our life and we stop trusting Jesus for the continuation of our salvation in our lives. And we just, in our own vain pursuits, just keep just forcing it. Jesus invites us to the cross again. And he invites us every day, come. Come who are weary. And this is the most beautiful thing that the gospel has to offer to us. God's righteousness was on full display on the cross. And if you seek Jesus you will always find the meaning to life. So this is what we're going to do. And thanks so much for your time and your attention this morning. I'm going to pray for us. Then the band is going to lead us in one last song. And before I pray, as the band is here and as they sing and as we respond to God, if the Lord is working in your heart, I want you to respond. This This is the most safe place there is to respond to God. You're surrounded by people who love you. And so if the Lord is working in your heart, I'm going to be at the back during this song, Come. If you want some prayer, there's going to be elders there. We would love to spend some time with you, okay? So let's pray. God, you are so good. You are so faithful. Lord, and while we were yet sinners, you died for us. And you pursued us. And Lord, yet, we're still drawn to pursue other things hoping that in those things we would find the meaning of life. What a lie. And yet every day you stand there as we wake up, you care for us, you know the hair on our head, you know that you knit us in our mother's womb, and you say, come, the meaning of life is in me. Stop chasing all these things. Lord, thank you so much for what you have done on the cross. Lord, help us in our lives to pursue wisdom, but to pursue it in, in a way that wouldn't lead to self-righteousness. Help us to invite you into our lives and ask every day for every decision, Lord, that we would run to you, that we would run to the cross and cry out to you and say, Lord, I need wisdom. And Jesus, you say that it, When we ask, when we seek, and when we knock, you will respond. Lord, you're good and you're faithful. Help us to respond to you this morning. We love you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
1: I'm forgiven because you were forsaken. I'm accepted. You were condemned And I'm alive and well The Spirit is within me Because you died and rose again I'm forgiven Because you were forsaken And I'm accepted You were condemned And I'm alive and well Your spirit is within me Because you died and rose again Amazing love Amazing love How can it be You my king would die for me Amazing love It's true, and it's my joy to honor you. In all I do, I honor you. I'm accepted. I'm forgiven.